Colossians 3 and verse number 3. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. That text is what they just sang about. Complete in Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the way that you unconsciously, at least unconscious to us, unconsciously prepare us for what it is that you desire to communicate. Lord, I believe so very strongly that this this part of the service is the pinnacle. And we've arrived here, Lord, expecting to hear from Thee. It's a holy time. And I pray that a hush would fall across our hearts. And that by the end of this service, we would find ourselves complete in Thee. We thank You and we love You in Jesus' name. Amen. In 62 A.D., a messenger left Rome undetected. His name was Epaphroditus. He was carrying a letter which had been written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. He was headed back to Colossae where he was the pastor of a local assembly of safe, scripturally baptized believers who had voluntarily covenanted themselves together before God to carry out the Great Commission. That church gathered in, a, in, a house, in the house of a man named Philemon. I, I understand, as I've read, that that church never actual, actually had a, a formal church building. Uh, other churches did, but this one met in the house, in the home of a man named Philemon. There's a book written to Philemon from the Apostle Paul concerning a, a slave of his named Onesimus. Uh, that's another message altogether. But Colossae is, uh, you, if you look at a map, you won't find it. As a matter of fact, if you Google Colossae, it'll take you to the Roman Colosseum. That's not where it was. Uh, Colossae is in modern-day Turkey. And you have to go quite a, quite a ways inland uh, from the Mediterranean Sea uh, into that uh, uh, country of uh, area of Turkey uh, to be able to get close to it. Mount, uh, there's a mountain there. I forget. I should have written it down. But there's a mountain there that kind of would help you get a bearing of where Colossae was uh, in, in Bible times. Uh, it was an advanced civilization. They were high thinkers. They were... Uh, they were Greek in their culture. They had a sizable population. Uh, it was more or less a door. The, it's the, you know, you've heard of the Roman road, not the Roman's road that we use to present the gospel, but the actual one of the roads that was built by Rome uh, ran through Colossae. And uh, they viewed it as a bit of a gateway uh, to, the, to the east. And it was actually kind of a door uh, that Rome tried to go through uh, to tame the Orient, uh, which they were never really able to do. Uh, and, uh, but they tried. They attempted to tame the East uh, and by, by kind of really focusing a lot of attention uh, in Colossae. It was a, it was a, a crossroads. It was a, it, was a, it was a busy place. And because it was a busy place, it served as a center for Greek culture. I've talked about in the past Alexander the Great and how that he advanced the Greek culture uh, all through that part of the world and how important that was because the uh, scriptures were written in the Greek language, and it became the business language of the world. Everybody knew Greek, and so everybody had access to the Word of God. 
in a language that they understood. Just a fascinating thing to consider as you think about the backdrop behind some of these things that happened we read about in the New Testament. So there's a center for Greek culture, uh, also a petri dish for uh, heathenism, paganism, and the mystical religions that were coming out of the East. And, and the philosophical uh, people that lived there um, really uh, were subject to this. And, and they liked to always to hear of some new thing. You know, you read a little bit about of what it might have been like when Paul stood on Mars Hill and he saw that inscription to the unknown God and he cried out to the Athenians, I'm here to preach to you of the unknown, of this unknown God. And it really grabbed their attention because they were always wanting to learn something new. They were very philosophical. Uh, they, they loved knowledge. They thought knowledge was power. Uh, and much like we, we, we have a tendency to believe that way as well in, in this day and age. But this is the culture that, that this local assembly of saved, scripturally baptized believers found themselves in. And certainly they were, they were subject to that culture. You know, they lived in that culture. Their culture was not just uh, what they did. Their culture was who they were. And a lot of them were saved out of that type of background. You know, it's interesting to note the Apostle Paul never went to Colossae. Uh, but still, many still consider him to be the founder of the church at Colossae because when he preached at Ephesus, a lot of those people at Ephesus were from Colossae. And they went back to Colossae, and they, they did what they were supposed to do as believers, and they evangelized others. They told others of, uh, of, of, the, of the faith they had found in Christ and the relationship of, uh, the, with God that they had found through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, and they, they uh, went back to their homes, and, and uh, this church, this local assembly was started uh, at Colossae as a result of that. Now, uh, this uh, fellow, Epaphroditus, he was the pastor of the church at Colossae. And um, in a lot of ways, he was like the founding pastor. You know, I, uh, seven, eight years ago, uh, really eight, nine years ago, I, uh, my family and I came to this community, and we began to kind of interject ourselves into the community and with the intention of, of birthing a church. And, and it's happened. God, God grew his church and is growing his church. And it's much like that. Epaphroditus was, was somewhat like that, that he went and, and continued to uh, share Christ with others so that they could be saved and disciple those who were saved. And, and they began to meet together in the local assembly. That's the definition of a church. And so uh, that's, that's where they found themselves. Well, one of the things that happened, this is about, oh, I don't know, it's within the first century of the, of the, uh, of the church, um, Gnosticism began to creep in to the church. And, and Gnosticism, somebody has called it the church's first heresy. And, uh, and there's different versions of it. You know, there's diff different versions of Gnosticism, different things that marked certain groups of Gnosticists. And uh, Colossae was no different. They had a certain group. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's, uh, I think it's pronounced the Essenes. But they were Gnostic in their faith. And they were marked by three main things. Number, uh, the first thing was is, is that they had the practice of what they called higher thought. And uh, they were very intellectual people. They were very philosophical people. And, and that practice of higher thought had led, and we're talking about people in the church now, because Paul is having to address this with the local assembly of saved scripturally baptized believers. This practice of higher thought had led these people to believe that they had knowledge in a jug and held the stopper in their hands, as somebody, as somebody wrote. You know, they, they thought they were it. 
As far as knowledge was concerned, there was no smarter person in the room. And again, somebody wrote, they, they thought that they had knowledge in a jug and held the stopper in their hands. And it was the, that, that it was the end and the beginning was with them. Well, Paul subtly touched on this in Colossians 1.28, affirming that all wisdom is found in Christ alone. And so you see a subtle kind of uh, jab there in Colossians 1 and verse number 28, uh, when he says, Whom we preach, speaking of Christ, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And uh, they, were, they were trying to uh, find maturity in the Christian faith through the means of knowledge and their own wisdom and, and uh, things like that. And, and, so, uh, and Paul is addressing, they're subtly addressing uh, this thing of, of uh, the fact that all wisdom is, is, is found in Christ alone. That's where we find all wisdom. So that was one thing. That just kind of gives you a, kind of a feel for uh, the, the arrogance of the people. You know, they thought they were the smartest people in the room. They also come to the opinion, this is a weird one, and I don't know how you come to this opinion. Now, these are Christian people, okay? But they had come to the opinion that God may have not spoken the universe into existence directly, but that God had created a creature who created a creature who in turn created another creature until one of the creatures finally created the physical universe. Now, that is the root of pantheism. And that's the root of pantheism. And it, it comes from Gnosticism. And it came from uh, largely from this group at Colossae. Now, how do you get there except that you drift away from the Word of God and faith in the Word of God and begin to try, instead of faith of things out, figuring things out, and now you think that all wisdom resides with you when the fact is all wisdom resides with and in Christ, and, and it affects every doctrine all the way back to the beginning, right? In the beginning, God. And so it, it, it tainted every, every one of their thoughts. Well, Paul dealt with that a little more directly than he dealt with the knowledge thing in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, when he wrote, For by him were all things created uh, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Who is Paul talking about? He's talking about Christ. So all knowledge is in Christ. All power is in Christ. And he's, he's dealing with this, these, uh, th this pattern of thinking, this Gnosticism that has poisoned the pot in the local assembly at Colossae. Now, isn't that interesting? There's a third thing. There's a third thing that marked this group, and it was their adherence to uh, two very polarized ways in which they lived their lives. On the one hand, uh, some practiced a hyper-disciplined lifestyle that was characterized by an abstinence from any and all indulgence. I mean, they thought if, if it was good, we can't do it because it's sin. It must be sin. And I got to thinking, that sounds how I, like how I grew up. Man, if it was fun, we couldn't do it, you know? And, uh, but that's the way they were. They were very, very, very disciplined in their life. That was one side. And, and here's the funny thing. The opposite side of the church, there was others in the church that lived exactly the opposite. And they threw it all out the window and lived their lives totally unrestrained. So Paul needs to address this. This is part of Gnosticism, part of their beliefs that had, that had crept into the church. And so Paul addressed the hyper-discipline 
in Colossians chapter 2, and then he shifts his attention to the unrestrained in Colossians chapter 3. That's where we find our text. Now, in order to make the, a, a proper application, you've got to get the right interpretation down. That's why I'm going through all of this, because I want you to understand the backdrop of this statement that is being made here when Paul is addressing these people that were living an unrestrained lifestyle. They looked at everything as, ah, it's not black and white, it's gray. Everybody just does what they feel is right, you know. Uh, I have liberty in Christ, you know. Paul, I don't know if they had this letter yet, but uh, they, they may have done like a lot of Christians today do and say, well, the, the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Well, the problem is a lot of stuff that we do, that we exercise liberty in, the Spirit of Christ is nowhere near it. Amen, right? And so that was perhaps their attitude. And, and this is what Paul wrote to them. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Now with that background and that backdrop uh, and that knowledge, that makes a whole lot more sense there, doesn't it? And look what he goes on to say. He says, for ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, doesn't, have, doesn't that hold more meaning when you understand what it is that the Apostle Paul, who, who he was writing to, what was the, what was the circumstance that surrounded, what, what precipitated these words? You know, it makes it a whole lot more meaningful, doesn't it? And boy, what a great message for us. And that's, that's the proper interpretation. For those of us who are believers, we need to recognize that that uh, we've been risen with Christ, and we are seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. I think it's so important that Paul wrote that as he spoke of the fact that Christ uh, has every one of God's attributes. And the fact that he is seated on the right hand of the throne of God, nothing escapes the knowledge of Christ. You can't do anything that Christ isn't aware of that you're doing. You might say, well, it was, I didn't do anything, I just had a thought. He's aware of that too. He knows your thoughts. There's nothing that escapes his reach. There's nothing that escapes his power. And so this is a great reminder. Boy, it, it would change our behavior if we were to walk around as believers recognizing that God is, is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. You see the, the message that Paul, God using Paul uh, to write here to these people that were living this unrestrained lifestyle. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So that's the correct interpretation of the scripture. But I want to take, and I want to, having made the, the proper interpretation, I want to move on to make an application of a wonderful truth that we find in the phrase, your life is hid with Christ in God. Your life is hid with Christ in God. There are many people who trust in Christ as their Savior, and sometimes, typically, it's at a very early age. And then somewhere along the way, they begin, you know, for various reasons, they begin to doubt their salvation. They begin to wonder, was I, did I know what I was doing? Was I sincere enough? Did I confess all of my sins? You know, and they struggle with this thing that we call uh, in, in the church uh, with eternal security. Eternal security. 
I've had conversation in the, just the past few weeks with people who struggle with eternal security. There was a time in their life when they thought that they had placed their faith in Christ alone, but now they struggle with it. Now they're not sure about it. Now They look at their lifestyle and they say, if I was saved, how could I do some of these things that I'm doing? And, and some, of them, some of us, when we go so far along, we become calloused to things that we, we don't even begin. We, we're past feeling. That's what Paul calls it in, in the book of Ephesians. Sometimes we do something so often, and when we started off doing it, we felt ashamed about it. We felt bad about it. But then we kind of got used to it. We grew calloused to it. And so we look at that, we say, if, I, if I'm saved, how could I be callous toward this thing? How come it doesn't bother me anymore? And that's what we're dealing with, this idea of eternal security. And we're going to break down this phrase uh, uh, that we find in verse number three, uh, your life is hid with Christ in God. And I'm going to show you an illustration today that I've never shown to anybody else. So you're the very first I was asking the Lord, Lord, lead me to where we need to be on Sunday morning. And what well, was like the ceiling was brass, and all of my prayer requests were being bounced off the ceiling and sent crashing to the floor. Lord, and I'm asking the Lord, show me, help me, Lord. Help me to understand myself so that I can communicate it to others. And, and as silly as it might seem later on, I really believe that the Lord uh, allowed me, my understanding to be opened uh, so, that I could, so that I could present this to you. And I'm excited to do that. I, I've hardly slept last night because I was so excited about it. I slept well, but when I, uh, when I thought about it, I was just so thrilled about it. I dreamt about it. And I hope this will be a help to you. And I hope that you'll pay attention. And I hope that by the end of this service, if you're doubting your salvation, that you'll have it settled once and for all. And it could very well be that you do need to trust in Christ alone, or it could very well be that God would do for you what he did for me so many years ago when he showed me uh, that uh, Christ was enough. And it wasn't about me. It was about Christ and what Christ has done. But look at those first two words, if you will, please, in that phrase, Colossians 3, verse number 3, your life. Your life. Isn't that the big question? What is life? Right? Uh, it's, a, it's a question we find in God's Word, James 4, 14. James asks the question, what is your life? What is your life? And the answer is, it is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, then vanisheth away. How many of you would say, yeah, I can identify with that. My life has gone by way too fast. I think all of us could identify with that at some level, at some degree. And I'll tell you this, at 51 years old, I find that to be more true now than I ever have. I cannot believe how fast a life can flash before our eyes. It's a puff of steam. It's there for a moment, then it vanishes into nothing. And, and I think every one of us could identify that, that life goes by far too quickly. You know, uh, for the believer, and we're talking about believers because Paul was writing to believers here. That doesn't mean that, a, that an unbeliever cannot gain uh, something from this. As a matter of fact, I think an unbeliever could gain a lot from this morning's message. But as, as believers, there was a time when we had a life without Christ. Did you know that? You weren't born into Christianity. You can't be. Uh, the Word of God says in, in John 1, 12 and 13, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Uh, born not of, the, not of blood. You're not born into a Christian family and automatically become a Christian. That's, that's what John 1, 13 teaches. Not, not of blood. Uh, 
not of the will of the flesh. It can't be by good works that we do. Nobody's going to stand before God someday and say, well, I know I did some bad things, God, but look at all the good things I did. You know, no, it's not going to be like that. Not, not will of the flesh, nor the will of man. Somebody can't impose uh, salvation upon you. Somebody can't do something for you so you can have a relationship with God. There's no baptisms, no prayers, no, you know, whatever the case might be. No, there's nothing that somebody else can do that will give you a relationship with God. No, it's, it's by the will of God. And so there was a time in a believer's life when they were without Christ. They were without Christ. A life without Christ is empty. A life without Christ is empty. Uh, a life without Christ is never fully complete. That's why Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. A life without Christ is, is a fearful life. Without Christ, death is a looming darkness that is to be feared. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. A life without Christ is a, a life of wandering without direction. Now, do you know what it's called when you wander without direction? That's called being lost, guys, okay? So just mark that down. Use that wherever you need to. Ladies, you're welcome to remind them of what I said if you're ever trying to find that restaurant uh, later on. But those without Christ are wandering around. They're lost. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you don't think you're lost, then Jesus didn't come for you. I mean, that's the harsh reality, isn't it? Jesus proclaimed himself to be the way. Why? Because people are lost. A life without Christ is lost. A life without Christ has no lasting peace. Jesus said in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth. Do you know why? Because the peace of this world doesn't last. The peace of God passes all understanding. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so a life without Christ has no lasting peace. A life without Christ is a life of living alone. It's one of the, I think, the greatest fears that, that people have is this thing of, of being alone, being the only one. There's no friend like the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 15, Jesus had this to say, I have called you friends. Imagine that. The creator of the universe has called us friends. Those without Christ do not have anyone that they can truly say will never leave them nor forsake them. There's not a soul that they have. That's a, that's a truth and a promise that is reserved for the believer. We find it in Hebrews 13 and verse number 5. Without Christ, we're perishing under the wrath of God. We're condemned already without hope and on the broad road to de eternal destruction and separation from God. That was life without Christ. Your life is like the TV program from a long time ago. This is your life. Boy, that'd be a rotten program, wouldn't it? All those things. Without Christ, here's the amazing thing. Somebody might be listening to me right now. They might be watching on Facebook Live or listening on dial-up or, or, or watching a vi the video of this later on, and they might be sitting there going, that doesn't describe me, and I don't have Christ. Here's, here's the kicker. Without Christ, we're often convinced that everything is fine. The most dangerous thing in this world is for somebody to be able to perceive that they succeed without Christ. They don't even know their lost condition. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul wrote to the saints at Corinth, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, the devil, the adversary, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And so they walk around in their lost, empty, fearful, uh, just anxious, lonely, perishing lifestyle, not even realizing that, that all that is true about them. They think they're fine. And the devil's more than happy to, to let them believe that. And they're blinded. They're blinded to the glorious gospel of Christ. And so that's what we encounter in the, first in this phrase, are those two words, your life, your life. And it's a great reminder to the believer of what life was like before Christ. And, and it's a great, a great announcement to the unbeliever to say, look, this is where you are, and there's a good chance that you don't even realize how bad off you are. And you're blinded by the adversary to the glorious gospel of Christ. And it would behoove you to maybe sit up and pay attention. Let's look at the next two words. Started off your life. The second part of this phrase, is hid. Is hid. There are only two types of people in this world. Did you know that? There's only two types of people in this world. Those who have Christ and those who have not Christ. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Jesus Christ is the life and righteousness we're missing from birth. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Isn't that great to know that you have eternal life? I mean, that doesn't mean 80% sure. That doesn't even mean 90% sure. It's even better than 99.9% sure. That's 100% sure. That ye may know that ye have eternal life, that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So, let's talk about those with Christ. With Christ. Those with Christ have their sin debt paid. Do you know the wages for sin is death? That's, the, that's the, uh, what the Bible says in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But, I like that conjunction. Because it's, it's about to cancel everything that, I just, that was just said. The wages of sin is death. The, the payment for sin is death. The, what I've earned because of my sin, even that one thing maybe that I've done in my life, a sin against God, that, that rebellion or that liar or, or that, you know, that, that thing in my life that is, is an iniquity, a sin, a transgression, a trespass against God, uh, that what I've earned for that is death, separation from God for eternity, ultimately is what that means. But, this is the good part, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now remember that phrase, the gift of God. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know what that means? Christ paid our sin debt. But God commendeth his love toward us. Do you know that? And that while we were yet sinners, God loves sinners. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a gracious God that even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. Nothing took God by surprise. And so those with Christ have their sin debt paid. Those with Christ, their sins will be remembered no more. We talked about this last week, but let me review it because it's really exciting. That your sin, when you're in Christ, when you're with Christ, now keep, that, keep these words you know, in our minds as we go through this. Your life with Christ, 
means that your sins are going to be remembered no more. We find that promise first in Jeremiah 31, 33, and then it's repeated twice in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10. Additionally, in addition to that, that our sin not being remembered anymore, Psalm 103 says, uh, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 19, He will have compassion upon us, uh, he will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the seas. And so uh, those with Christ, their sins will be remembered no more, removed from us, and cast into the depths of the sea. You see, you see uh, uh, a lot of times we think, and there's even songs written about it, and the doc that doctrine is wrong, that our sins are covered by the blood. Well, that's Old Testament covenant. Under the New Testament, under the blood of Christ, it's they're removed. And your life in Christ is a life that is removed from the sin nature and remembered no more. I mean, this is, this is almost too much to be believed, but, but it's what the Word of God teaches. They have their sin debt paid. Their sins are remembered no more. The, the transgressions are absolutely removed, not just covered up, not just swept under the carpet, but removed and cast into the depths of the sea. In the, of God's, and may I use the word forgetfulness because there's a big difference between God choosing not to remember and forgetting. God's an omniscient God, He knows everything, but He chooses not to remember our sins and iniquities anymore. That's what it is to be with Christ. With Christ, we are justified. When God looks upon the believer, he sees them, get this, he sees them as if they have never belonged to a sinful human race. That is how powerful this thing is. That when before Christ, your life before Christ, uh, condemnation hung over your head because when God looked upon you, despite all the good that you've done in your life, there was still that sin that needed to be dealt with. And without Christ, that's all you're dealing with. That's why those who are dead without Christ, when they die, they'll stand before God someday and be judged according to their works. But those who are saved, those who have trusted in Christ alone as their only hope of relationship with God and the homeless presence for eternity, have their sin debt paid. And when they stand before God someday, God will not look upon them and see the good works and the, and the sin in their lives. They won't be judged according to their works, but they'll be judged according to Christ. And when God looks at them, He looks at them just the same way as He looks at Christ. Let's develop this even further. As Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. When we stand, when the believer stands before God someday, and, and I don't know, I can't, you know, reconcile all this in my finite mind, but someday when I stand before God, God is going to look at me, as if he's looking at his own son, Christ. That's what it means to be justified. It's almost as if God won't even be able to see me because he'll be looking at Christ. My name will be called when the roll is called up yonder, and I'll step forward to the bar. It's almost as if 
the righteous judge will turn and look to Christ. And Christ, my advocate, will say, he's mine. Isn't that powerful? That's the power of the word justification. It's the doctrine of justification that we find in the book of Romans. So we see those words. Your life is hid. Who's he writing to? He's writing to believers. Your life is hid with Christ and God. Notice that part of the phrase now. We become the children of God. When we become the children of God, we become the joint heirs of Christ. Did you know that? Do you know what a joint heir is? That means that the joint heir has all the rights and privileges of the heir. There's no difference. Galatians 3.26 tells us we're all the children of God. How? By faith in Christ Jesus. Those that have trusted in Christ as their only hope of relationship with God and homeless presence for eternity are the children of God. And if children, Romans says, then heirs. Heirs of God. H-E-I-R-S. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So Christ, as mediator, is the heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Who's the heir of all things? It's Christ. Those with Christ, by virtue of their union with him, therefore, will inherit all things. Revelation 21, 7 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And then in Revelation 12, 11, it tells us how, how to become an overcomer. That is, by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame them by the blood of the Lamb. That's how we become an overcomer. By Christ. And because Christ is the heir of all things, by virtue of our union with him, we become the heir of all things. Now, that's powerful. I don't think we can grab hold of that. I don't think we understand that. Those with Christ, by virtue of our union with him, will partake of Christ's glory. In John chapter 17, verse number 24, Jesus prayed this prayer, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. And so we'll, we'll inherit all things. We will partake of Christ's glory. We will sit down with Christ upon his throne. Did you know that? Those who have trusted in Christ, it says it in the word of God. Revelation three twenty one, To him that overcometh, how do you overcome? By the blood of the Lamb, right? To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Wow. You know what that means? If you've trusted in Christ like I have, someday you're going to... You're going to kneel before Christ. I have a good, a good notion that will probably fall on our faces. He's going to pick us up. Say, come on, get up. Come here, sit here. Your life is hid with Christ and God. Those with Christ become the children of God and joint heirs. And this gets back to the subject that we're dealing with in the next few moments. We'll be done very soon. When you become a child of God, you become a joint heir eternally. You cannot lose it. And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove that to you this morning with an illustration.
Let me give you some Bible first. That's always a good place to start, right? I found that a lot of my theology is messed up by God's word. Most famous verse in all the world probably, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not, should not perish but have what kind of life? Everlasting. Now you don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand what that word means. Everlasting. But just in case you don't, John 5, 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So get this. i got to prepare this, okay? Here we go. First time ever. Your life. <laughs> this is your life. Empty, full of fear, no direction, no lasting peace, alone, perishing under the wrath of God, condemned already, helpless, hopeless, blind to it all. This is your life. This is the unbeliever. But at some point, the unbeliever comes to faith in Christ, right? And then it goes from your life with Christ. Your life with Christ is hid. Now, you could still see his arms. So remember what he said in Colossians, ye are dead. Why do they fold your hands on your chest when you put you in a casket? I don't know. We got a nurse, maybe ask her afterwards. There's a reason they do that. But your life, when you trust Christ as your Savior, your life is hid with Christ. So remember what I said about justification? When God looks at you, what does he see? Because your life is hid with Christ. Where'd you go? Getting tucked up in there good, so no, can't see him, can you? Your life is hid with Christ. Well, wait a minute. In God. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And you know God doesn't stop there? God doesn't stop there. In Colossians 2, i got to read this because I didn't get it memorized. Sorry. Colossians 2, verses... Uh, one, uh, chapter 1, verses 21-22 says, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. Because it's, it's the work of God. It's the gift of God, right? Who also, hath also sealed us. Have you ever heard that? He's also sealed us and giveth, giveth, given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. In my Sunday school class, we were looking at Ephesians chapter 4, and it says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby... God has sealed us unto the day of redemption. So our life is hid with Christ in God, and then we've got a seal. Good old duct tape. And the seal that God puts on there, the down payment for our guarantee of eternal life is the Holy Spirit, and he seals, seals us. Our, our salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit. So here we go. 
Our life is hid in Christ, with Christ, in God, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, I need a volunteer. Let's see. I need Casey. Yeah, I was going to give it to you anyway. Now, there's a tag on here. We can't have that on there. I hope this doesn't backfire. All right, Casey. Your life is hid with Christ in God and sealed by the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, let's suppose that that little guy, that little paper guy, was me. Okay? I want you to get me out of there. Go ahead. You say, uh-oh, he's in trouble. No, this is playing out perfectly. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your help. So Casey just proved a point, and you didn't even know it. All that a person has to do to lose their eternal life is to bypass the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all you have to do, is bypass that, is destroy the work of God, the work of Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, do you think that's even possible? Isn't that awfully prideful for us to think that we could bypass the work of God, the work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit? No. Impossible. See, your life is hid. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, your life is hid with Christ in God and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 10, 28, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And the only thing that you need that in order for you to do to lose your salvation is to destroy the work of God, the work of Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit. It's awfully prideful for us to think that we could even do that, isn't it? Why don't you want that kind of security? What is your life? Are you with Christ? Can you say, like Paul wrote to the saints at Galatia, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Are you, are you with Christ? Are you in God? Has your name been written in the Lamb's book of life? Have, have you been sealed until the day of redemption? I hope so. And I hope that you'll be forever settled in your mind, if you're not already, of your eternal security. You can't undo what God does. It's just not possible. 
And I hope that this illustration helps, helps to show that, helps to illustrate that. You might be listening today and you've not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior. I would invite you to do that today. If, if you've already trusted in Christ as your Savior, I'd invite you to respond however the Lord may, may lay on your heart to respond. And Claudia's going to make her way to the piano and she's going to play a hymn of invitation. My faith looks up to thee. And that's what we're looking to do today. We're looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. We're not looking to ourselves, but we're looking to Christ. And we're responding to how God wants us to respond. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, piano's playing. You respond however the Lord leads you to respond. I welcome you to come to this, this altar and let the Lord deal with you here. If you've not yet trusted in Christ as Savior, you've got more questions, oh, please let me know. Please make contact with me. I'll be glad to help you through God's Word. Respond however the Lord leads you this morning.